Bernie Stevens. I'm the uh, Deputy Division Director for Law Enforcement at the Council of State Governance Justice Center. So what inspired you to join law enforcement? Well, I joined law enforcement back in 1992. Uh, was my first police academy that I went to. And, you know, my goal was something I always just wanted to do at a very young age. Uh, I was always, I seemed to work at a job where they always had security, uh, off-duty security there. And just talking to the officers, they, they made it sound fun. And I was um, lucky enough in my high school to have a law enforcement class that I was able to take. And that gave me a little bit of a higher overview about law enforcement. And it was just something I felt called to do. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey? Yeah. Again, it started in 1992. I began um, at a very small municipality here in San Antonio called Terrell Hills. Um, very upper class, well-to-do uh, type of neighborhood there. So it wasn't a whole lot to do. Things were pretty quiet. Uh, and I stayed there for about two and a half years and then had the opportunity to test for the San Antonio Police Department uh, and joined there in 1994. And um, like most officers, you start out in patrol. I was in patrol for about uh, five years. I did some time as a field training officer where I was training the new uh, recruits that were coming out from the academy. Uh, from there, I spent some time in um, a street crimes team, uh, which was a proactive type patrol. We weren't responsible for calls, but go out and look for uh, crime in, spe in specific areas. Um, I then transferred to the DWI task force where I spent three years uh, working DWI. Um, then I went to a tactical response unit, which again was similar to the proactive patrol, but we were uh, partnered with the gang unit and really focused in on illicit drugs, um, violent crime, uh, weapons that we could go out and try to find and seize and uh, just try to clean up high crime areas that were being targeted. And uh, my last 15 years on the department, I, I spent a lot of time doing the mental health uh, aspect of it. Uh, helped start a mental health unit in 2008, and uh, it just kind of took off from there. Yeah, with that, for you, you know, covering some, as a police officer, covering some pretty dangerous situations, how did you also take care of your own mental health while doing that? Yeah, probably not as good as I should have, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, like most officers, uh, we are really focused in on helping the communities we serve and not as much focused on ourselves. Um, I, I think that's just part of the job of not being a selfish person uh, in law enforcement. Your, your goal is to serve others and really put yourself second. Um, and that's what I did for many, many years. And it wasn't until, to be honest with you, until I retired in January of 2020. 21, uh, that it all came, it all hit me at once. Uh, it was like, wow. Um, I dealt with a lot of situations. I saw um, a lot of tragedy and uh, traumatic events. And I finally had time to start processing it. And I think that's really where it hit me. So, but along the way, I will say this, I had good coping skills in place. I just didn't know I was using them. Um, I was going to the gym every day, working out, uh, had a good um, nucleus with a church family and support at home, no family problems at home. So the things that I needed in place to help me uh, be resilient and well were already there. Uh, I was just blessed enough to have those in place already. How is it helping other officers uh, through uh, uh, mental health programs? Yeah, so that's a difficult one uh, because of the stigma, right? The stigma yeah. is still so, so bad in law enforcement. And 
it, and I understand, I get why, right? Uh, a lot of officers don't want to ask for help uh, because they're afraid that their leadership is not bought in to building these cultures of wellness um, environments that would help staff and employees really thrive. Um, where I'm talking about making an organization where it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that, that way. So having the infrastructure in place to really help these officers with the understanding that there's really going to be no repercussion for asking for assistance, uh, knowing that that is should be and seen and viewed as part of the job. You're talking a little bit about the stigma in police office, uh, in uh, the police departments, but how does it feel for you to trying to, you know, loosen that stigma? Um, you know, it, again, if you have buy-in from the leadership, it makes it a lot easier. Um, th the difficulty is there's always going to be change along the way, right? Um, you're going to have leadership retire and then new leadership come in that maybe doesn't share the same values um, or the same focus that your previous leadership had in place where it came to helping officers. So, and that's everything from setting up, you know, peer support programs to um, having officers really feel safe and asking for some assistance. And uh, so it's a challenge. It's a challenge no matter where you're at. Um, I know agencies that do a very good job at cultivating a uh, culture of wellness within their own agency. But again, because of the shift in personnel, there has to be that true buy-in that um, it's not the way it used to be in law enforcement, where you would just, you know, rub some sand in it and get, you know, get up, get going, get on your feet. It's things are changing. Um, law enforcement, a noble career in and of itself is not a desired career field anymore like it used to be. So uh, you really need leadership to come into place and understand that uh, and be there and support their officers when they need it. So what inspired you to start writing books? Uh, so that one, that's a funny story. So my buddy, Nick Ruggiero, he had, he had written many books. Um, and uh, I think every one of them hit number one on Amazon. And uh, he had reached out to me one day and, and said, hey, do you want to partner and write a book together? And I'm like, uh, I mean, I'm not a writer, Nick. I mean, I'll, I'll do your podcast or whatever. But he goes, well, let's do one. I'm like, all right, I'll try. And, he's, and he goes, well, let's do one on homicide. I'm on homicide. I mean, I've worked homicides, but I've never been assigned to a homicide unit. Um, how about mental health? He's like, oh, yeah, man, I forgot. Like, you're a mental health guy. Let's do that. So it just so happened we both got COVID at the same exact time um, without knowing. So he is secluded, has nothing to do but to write. Um, so I'm secluded. I'm like, well, let me go ahead and get started on this. And the idea was we were each going to write about 50 pages and then mesh it and see how it turned out. Um what had happened in the way the book turned out, he read my portion, I read his, we were completely um, on, on, on the same page, but two different uh, points of view from the way that we wrote it. He wrote it from a supervisor's point of view, the first two chapters. And then I wrote the rest of the book more from a boots on the ground um, illustration on how to utilize crisis intervention training skills and de-escalation. So uh, he was very humble in the fact that he only... I think wrote the first 30 pages and he gave me almost 80. The book went number one on Amazon. Uh, we got a lot of requests from police agencies. I've now got over a hundred agencies that have uh, ordered the book and some of them use it and put it in their library and use it for training. But it was also family members, hospital staff, um, 
a variety of correction officers, uh, dispatchers. I mean, it was all different walks of life that were finding value and benefit in learning about de-escalation and crisis intervention skills. So um, it, it had a good wide, it casted a wide net. Um, uh, I still get a lot of orders today. Right now, I'm actually running a, a special where I'm donating 100% of the proceeds to the Leukemia Society. So um, we're, we're trying to do uh, the right thing and promote the information that's in the book, but also give back. Yeah, how does it feel to hear stories that, you know, from your book that people are really feeling it? Yeah, you know, we, we I get contacted at least two, three times a week. Uh, somebody's got a question about the book or they've seen the HBO documentary uh, that I'm in, Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. And um, they have great feedback. Uh, some of them like question tactics, right? Hey, why did you do this in the documentary? Or why do you say this in the book? And then when you have a little bit more time to explain it and have conversation, they're like, okay, well, that makes sense. Maybe I'll try to institute uh, that, that type of tactic when I'm at work. So it's always good to get feedback, whether it's positive or negative. It's really just an opportunity uh, to have a conversation, uh, be very open and focused about what we want to um, kind of delve down into when we're discussing mental health and or de-escalation tactics and uh, help move the needle forward. So how was it being a subject in a documentary? Yeah, that was tough. I mean, when you watch the film, and it's still available right now on HBO Max, um, when you watch Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops, you look at it and you feel like, oh, wow, I kind of went on a ride along with these guys for about the last hour and a half. But in reality, Michael, it took three years to film this documentary. Um, it was um, over 300 hours of film condensed into 96 minutes. So there was a lot um, that was not included in the film, thank goodness. <laughs> but at the same time, it was um, it was a lot to ask for for our families because the you know the camera crew, right. the audio crew would follow us home. They were following me to school. They were following me to church. Um, it seemed like every time you turned around, there was a camera on you, and you have to. You're not acting. You're you're in a documentary, so you're just living your everyday life, and they're capturing these moments. And when Jen McShane, the director, brilliant was filming this, I really had no idea what the end product was going to be because there's really nothing sexy about two cops from Texas answering mental health calls. I'm like, where's the, like, who's gonna really wanna watch this? But what's interesting is when it, when the film debuted at South by Southwest in 2019 and, and won a festival award there, um, we knew that we were in for a long year of film festivals because the film really was about human connection and not so much just going on a ride along, uh, following officers answering mental health calls. It's you're looking at people using empathy to make connection with other human beings that are in a crisis and then show that empathy and use it in a way to help them with either resources, wraparound services, continuity of care, or whatever it was in the moment that that individual needed. I like that you brought up empathy. How important is it to use empathy as a police officer? It's a key in every situation. You know, unfortunately in policing, and I'm, I'll, I'll say I'm guilty of it for many, many years. Um, you know, you were, hear, you were hearing an officer say, hey, look, I'm just doing my job. You know, to me, that's probably one of the worst things you could say. That means I'm not being empathetic to your situation. I really don't care. I'm just doing my job so I don't get in trouble. And I was so guilty of that. And until somebody said it to me one day, I was like, well, that's kind of crappy. Like, I understand you're just doing your job, but man, I'm, I've got a crisis going on over here. Yeah. So when the shoe was on the other foot, 
the aha moment went off and I was like, look, you really have to be empathetic to people and understand that in this moment, they really could use your help and not your, I told you so, or there's a consequence because of this action. They really do need to feel supported. And that really is the true essence of what crisis intervention training is. It's how to connect with another individual when they're in a crisis. So what motivates you? You know, I, right now, what motivates me is agencies that are in the process of setting up um, mental health units, community responder teams, <clears throat> co-responder teams, and they look different, right? So at the Justice Center, my job with the portfolios is to help um, give technical assistance to law enforcement agencies that get grants from the Department of Justice to set up these types of uh, initiatives or uh, specialty teams. Right, so you have a co-response team, which normally you will pair an officer with a clinical social worker to respond to calls for mental health crises. So we help develop those, but then you also have community responder models, which sometimes is a medic and a social worker and law enforcement has been removed from responding to some of these calls, right? Because for the longest time, Michael, you, you know, law enforcement has been the de facto to every 911 call yeah. that comes in. And they're not, they're not always the best resource to send out to a situation, especially when we're talking about a mental health crisis. So it, what, what gives me passion and drives me and motivates me is seeing these programs get off the ground, uh, the planning phase, and then really the, the excitement is the initiation phase once these get going, the implementation. So how can people uh, reach out and learn more about you? Um, I don't do a whole lot of social media. I'm on LinkedIn. So if you search my name, Ernest Stevens, I'm on LinkedIn or on Twitter at eStevens0845. Um, you can reach out to me. My website uh, for the book also has a link to send in a question or a comment, and that's ErnestStevens.com. Um, again, there you can order the book if you're interested in that. Um, I'll, again, I'm donating 100% of the proceeds, including the cost of the book and shipping will cost you nothing to Leukemia Society. So um, if you've got a question about the book, if you've got a question about the film, um, if it's free screening right now, the HBO documentary is free screening to law enforcement. You just have to go to ErnieAndJoeTheFilm.com and register at that link, and you'll be able to watch that film for free with your if you're a first responder. And that's usually the time that my phone starts ringing or I get emails saying, hey, we're going to screen the film. Can you come out and, and speak to the group that's in attendance? So I try to manipulate my schedule and accommodate as much as I can, having a full-time job as well, but it always seems to work out. Yeah, how is it going there and talking to people on a, a personal level? It's been fantastic. Um, you know, what's interesting, and I've shared this before, is anytime we screen the film, um, like when we were in, um, in Austin or Boston or wherever we were at the time, you know, my, I would sit in the audience, kind of hidden, nobody really knew who I was, I'm a nobody, right? And they would come in and watch this film for 96 minutes. They came in as strangers. And then after 96 minutes, I would go up on stage and they would have an opportunity to make comments or ask questions. And there was such a connection made during the film. They felt like they knew you. Um, and they would start sharing their most intimate moments with you of tragedy that they've been through when it came to a mental health crisis. And we heard things like, well, if only you would have responded to to our house that night, or if only that was you talking to my loved one on a bridge, or if only our community had 
a unit like that you belong to, things would have been different. So um, it was it was surreal in the fact that beginning of the film, and I thought, who's ever going to watch this? To now really seeing the other side of it, yeah. where people really truly connected uh, with other humans, and they're like, look, we just need to be seen and heard, respected, and helped. And that was that's the outcome of this film, and it's been fantastic. 